Politica's premier radio podcast. The Politica is a global affairs club operating under Boston University in which we encourage intellectual conversation among students in pursuit of higher knowledge in the field of political research. In wake of the upcoming congressional election on November 3rd, 2020, the Politica is providing a platform for candidates to reach out and share their prospective policies. Today's podcast is part six of our Massachusetts 4th Congressional District election series. On Friday, August 14th, we interviewed Mr. Zanettos, born in Boston, raised in the suburbs, and MIT Sloan master's degree graduate. He is a first-generation Greek-American with 21st century capitalistic economic ideals and social initiatives. All right, sorry for starting off late, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name is Lily Non. I am the co-founder and co-president of the Politica at Boston University. And today I am joined by Callie and we will be interviewing Mr. Zanettos as the final individual interview for our MA4 Congressional Series. Um, I'm Callie. I'm one of the podcast directors at the Politica and I'm very excited to be helping Lila interview Mr. Zanettos tonight. Speaking of our interviewee, I'd like to let him introduce himself to us and everyone watching. Well, Callie, Lila, thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, so I guess let me just share a little bit about myself, who I am and uh, why I'm running. So I am, uh, I was born in the Boston area, raised here. I went to school at MIT. I haven't gotten very far. I, I settled down here, got married, had my kids here and um, started a bunch of businesses here. I am a tech entrepreneur. I've started three companies that have, um, uh, that have created jobs for hundreds of people in Massachusetts and a quarter billion dollars of salary. Um, I'm also the founder of a nonprofit called STEM Match MA, which brings companies together with schools to make tech and STEM opportunities more accessible to people in marginalized communities. Um, I think there's a, a real challenge for voters uh, coming up on September 1st in the Democratic primary. There are nine great people who are running. They're all good people. Um, and in many ways, our policies, and we may talk about that today, are very similar. And certainly our views of things like how we need to uh, drive to ensure social justice very proactively, um, need to address the climate challenge, healthcare accessibility, and ensure that we protect women's rights. I think the way that we are different is around um, the experience that we have. And I think you're gonna be asking some questions about that, which is great. Um, because that's the challenge to our people, to figure out what kind of experience is really needed down in Washington right now. And from my perspective, the single biggest challenge that we have right now um, is that as we get through the healthcare part of our pandemic, um, we have to deal with this economic crisis, which will be with us for some time. And now more than ever, we need people who understand the economic and the technology drivers of inequality that have created this huge income and opportunity gap that's only gotten wider. And unfortunately, right now, there are only six people in Congress who have any sort of experience in creating growth jobs or creating new paths in education for people to get good jobs, things that I've been doing both in work and my uh, work at STEM Match. And um, that is one reason that I decided to run. Uh, the other is that, to be uh, perfectly blunt, I couldn't stand the thought of my children and uh, your generation inheriting the utter mess that we have, the dysfunctional federal government the divided country, um, and importantly, a government that people just seem to posture and drive hyperpartisanship. Um, I think we need people who go down uh, to Washington who aren't fighters, but that get things done because it's time for us to take action. It is long overdue. So I'm happy to answer any questions that you have, and I really look forward to uh, hearing what you want to explore. 
Okay, thank you so much. That was great. I think first off, we'd like to talk about your past experience with STEM Match MA. So sure. you display a great interest in creating new jobs, but in the era of coronavirus especially, the job market has undergone a drastic change from what it was even just six months ago. Would you be able to elaborate a bit more on your endeavor to create jobs and how they will suit the virus and the various unprecedented obstacles created by the COVID pandemic? Sure. So, so actually, I don't know that the pandemic has changed as much as accelerated a lot of the trends. Unfortunately, prior to the pandemic, we had this roaring economy that was only working for about 10% of our people. And MIT came out with a study recently that showed that over the past few decades, the technology revolution has created some good jobs on the high end that required a very expensive four-year college degree, but it's eliminated 20 to 25% of the middle-class, middle-income jobs, replaced them with low-wage jobs. Well, we're going to see a similar effect accelerated through the pandemic. I've led companies through three uh, recessions, and I can tell you as a business leader, this one is going to be longer and harder, unfortunately, and we're going to have people chronically under and unemployed for years. What I believe we have to do is not just invest in infrastructure, which is what a lot of people talk about, but we have to invest in our people to train and retrain them to succeed in the 21st century economy instead of trying to bring back, jo bring back jobs from the 20th century economy. So what that means to me is we have to invest in K through 12 experiential learning around STEM and STEAM, uh, science, technology, engineering, math, and arts. But we also have to create new paths, as I've tried to do with STEM Match, for people who can't afford four-year college degrees to get training to get what we call new-collar jobs. Now, one of the things I've done with STEM Match is bring companies to work with Mass Bay Community College to um, add experiential learning and a paid internship on rent for people getting a one-year cyber certificate degree to get good cybersecurity entry-level jobs, sixty dollars to $80,000 a year jobs that you can actually lift the family up with. One thing you may not know is that we have 9,000 chronically unfilled cybersecurity jobs in Massachusetts, and we've had those for years because every company is looking for a four-year college degree graduate, and there aren't enough of them. So what we really need to do is make those opportunities available with apprenticeships and internships and, um, I believe, low low interest, forgivable loans for people to go to community colleges for one to two years or vocational schools, get necessary training and get those jobs. And this is cybersecurity, user design and experience, environmental technician, data analytics. There are a lot of these jobs, hundreds of thousands in Massachusetts that we could fill if we train our people. Now, I, I will also say we got to recognize that we have a an economic crisis that is impacting the middle and lower income communities more than anyone else. So I do believe we have to drive through the sort of stimulus that we have had. And frankly, I'm losing my patience. Congress has to work together to get the next stimulus out there so that our people who haven't been able to save money because they've been in such low wage jobs um, can feed, clothe and house their families. I hope that answered your question, but I'm happy to answer a follow-up if, if it didn't quite get to your what you were getting at. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. Yeah, we do appreciate the um, thorough explanation on that, especially with the fiscal side of everything going on with loan forgiveness. 
Um, you know, on another recent topic, something that's um, pretty important from what we've been polling as well was the recent antitrust trials. So which, you know, took place last month. Um, it signified the very view, which you stated on your website that, in quote, our government has not prepared itself for us seeing the for us the technology revolution, in quote. However, there are things that struck me the most about seeing the CEOs of these big tech companies, such as Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, yeah. and so forth, on the screen, with the first inaction of the current power holders surrounding the, um, you know, issues of technology, and second, the many difficulties that are beyond just the legislative of holding these tech companies accountable and protecting the rights and privacy of Americans, especially in the era of big data. So, as a tech expert, where do you see the greatest issues in, you know, these current state of affairs and the monopolization of these um, powerful tech companies. So uh, I'm afraid we could talk through the rest of the podcast just on this. I'm going to try to keep it short, though. Okay. Right. So, um, but you tell me uh, how long you want me to go on this, but I could go on for quite a while. So, look, I think that the um, clearly the um, the questioning of the tech leaders in Congress to me it illustrated exactly what's going wrong down in Washington. First of all, there were, you either saw congressional leaders grandstand or you saw an indication that they really didn't understand how these companies work and how the technologies work. There are only six people in Congress who have a professional background in the technology that's driving our world today, which is absurd. We need people down there who understand that, who won't be snowed by what the, the uh, tech execs may say and have the standing and credibility to hold them accountable. But also, frankly, they will be able to roll their sleeves up and work with them to find solutions. Um, and of course, on the tech side, it's clear that we have these vastly powerful, large technology organizations that reach into so many parts of our lives that we have to look very seriously at how we change regulations um, to protect our people and frankly, explore whether they are too big um, and, and provide just too much anti-competitive force in the marketplace. Privacy and security are extremely important to me. As you know, um, I've been working in cybersecurity for 20 years. I've started two companies in cybersecurity, and I've gone down to Congress to brief Congress people and senators about it. Um, we need to do a technology, needs to do a much better job of protecting people's information. And you know what? It is doable. So I know, for example, that if Facebook comes and says, well, we can't actually have a business model if we protect people's information more, I know that that's wrong because I've actually started a company that is, that delivers a free product to consumers, um, for, you know, improving their online security and avoiding being hacked that gets paid for by their employers where their employers get data that they need, but that it doesn't reveal the person's personal information. So they can never connect it to the person unless the person gives permission. That's exactly what we need uh, to drive with uh, with the big tech companies. So I think fundamentally, we need people down there who understand how it works, who can engage them to, to get progress and change things, but also you know won't be snowed over by them and have the credibility to hold them accountable. I see. And, you know, to follow up on that, um, going on more for protecting Americans, especially during um, these highly volatile times, you know, on the road back to normalcy um, with everything going on, um, economically speaking and politically speaking, how do we balance um, the initiatives of public health with real economic anxiety and what kind of fiscal policy would help us address the two? Oh, my gosh. Um, that's a big question. 
right? So, so first of all, I think uh, relative to public health, I, I don't know if you're just talking about pandemic or, or the fact that we just don't have quality access to quality healthcare for all Americans. So I'm going to sort of start there. Yeah, I think that it is a um, disgrace that a country that is the wealthiest country in the world has millions of people who can't get access to quality healthcare. I think there are two parts to this, and sometimes we only focus on one. The first part that I think we need to focus on, not surprisingly, is we need to make sure that people, everyone, is covered by quality healthcare insurance. I'm a I'm a big believer that we have to drive aggressively for universal healthcare. Um, I believe that we should offer a public option. I don't believe that we need to take away private insurance from people who like their insurance, but we need to make sure that everyone has access to affordable quality um, healthcare insurance. When when they lose their job, if God forbid they lose their job, they should get it immediately, should immediately kick in so that they and their families are protected. And then the rest of us can buy into it as well if we want to. Um, and frankly, we should enable it to negotiate separately with the drug companies to drive down drug prices. There's so many things that a, a strong public option will actually deliver benefits to all of us. I think we also have to recognize that it's not just the insurance. People in low-income communities have a hard time accessing the healthcare services physically, right? Now, dealing with the insurance will enable more preventative care, which will enable better health outcomes and healthier, longer, happier lives. But we need to make sure that they can actually, that people can actually get access to the services. We need better and improved public transportation. We need incentives to, uh, to incent healthcare organizations to create more community healthcare services in middle and lower income areas so they can be accessible. We need to give incentives to companies to eliminate food deserts so that people in every community can get easy access to healthy food to lead to better outcomes. And of course, we have to deal with the environment. I mean, the fact that, and it is a fact, that people in lower income communities and people of color breathe in 21% more pollution than others in our country tells us that we have to deal with that as well. Um, now, you asked about the balance between, as well, sorry, I went on a bit about healthcare. No, by all means, this is your show. You went on about the balance between healthcare and the fiscal issues that we have? Correct. Was how how do we balance the two and fiscally address them? Or at least, you know, um, what would be your um, proposition or initiatives in Congress, that is, with um, budgeting bills and taxes and whatnot? Uh, just specifically around healthcare, or about other areas as well. Um, specifically with healthcare. Sure. So you know, it was really interesting. I'll tell you, my my second company, um, we had thirty of the top healthcare organizations in the United States as customers, and I learned a ton from them. And one of the things I learned was everyone gets healthcare. <clears throat> they just make it the wrong healthcare, right? They go into you know a lot of people go into the emergency room if they don't have insurance. <clears throat> excuse me, and they um, have really acute problems, many of which, frankly, most of which could have been avoided with preventative care, and it would have resulted in a better quality of life, and frankly, a longer life. It also would be less costly, right? These, these healthcare organizations, large ones, are spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year in acute emergency room care that could have been avoided if we gave everyone insurance <clears throat> on the front end. So that's one area that we have cost in. Another area is in drug pricing, which will you know save money for insurers, but also for all of us. If we can enable 
the public option to negotiate separately with the drug companies, we'll start seeing our medicines priced a little bit more closely to the rest of the world, um, which is another area that's just unacceptable. In addition, there actually are a lot of regulations, um, some of which were created with good intent, um, even back in the Obama administration, around coding uh, around all of the procedures. And um, hospitals went from 800 codes for reimbursement to over 10,000. This is causing a lot of cost. So I think that we can reform areas around that as well uh, to reduce costs. But fundamentally, when you look at the overall cost of society of people not having good health care, I think we're seeing in the pandemic the, the real cost of it, right? We have all of these folks, our fellow citizens who we call um, uh, critical and essential workers that our system doesn't treat as essential. And they don't have good insurance. They don't have sick days. And what do they do? They, they have to earn a living for their families because they're not making very much money. They go to work. And we've seen in the pandemic the impact of that. So I actually think for all of us, we will see improvement um, in savings all over uh, our society by improving health care. You know, you um, finished um, or at least stated um, a brief mention on companies and um, healthcare and also, you know, the pursuit of um, the healthcare for the average citizen. And I think just going more over on that, um, you know, there are some companies that do have these fundamentals of prioritizing green initiatives. So more so off healthcare now, let's talk about, um, you know, just climate awareness and prioritization. So, mm -hmm. for example, um, Tesla claims that making a significant lasting impact on environmental sustainability is difficult to achieve without securing financial sustainability for the long term. So, you know, generating a free cash flow and operating with a cash flow uh, less capex of, you know, more than a billion dollars for the first time in 2019 was something that they achieved. So as a man with um, tech background and having been, um, you know, surrounded by um, a lot of these different companies that would also prioritize similar um, social initiatives, would you support the U.S. government in giving tech companies with strong environmental or humanitarian objectives um, tax breaks to help them continue on their scientific and humanitarian pursuits? Um, so I so I think, first of all, right, uh, just to state maybe the obvious, right, we have a climate crisis that gets worse every day, but that also gets harder to fix every day. And that's a and it's a challenge for us. And I understand this challenge a lot because of, I'm in cybersecurity. People don't recognize cybersecurity risks usually until something bad happens. That's the, that's just human nature. Actually, humans are generally optimistic and they really underestimate risk. Well, that's a problem with climate change because it gets harder every day to fix and there's a tipping point. So I think that the government needs to do what I would call an Apollo moonshot type of program, an investment in R&D and an implementation of clean energy conservation and remediation technologies and businesses. And some of that I think would fit into what you're talking about in terms of incentives to companies around green initiatives. But I especially would want it to focus on how can we improve the climate <clears throat> and create jobs at the same time? Um, and I'll explain uh, quickly why and how. The reason that we need to do this is because we have to bring some other people along with us. I'm really excited that Mitch McConnell finally realized two months ago that human beings are causing climate change. <clears throat> that was a great uh, advancement. Well, now we, make, we need to make the next step to get action. 
Now, one of the, the, the ways that people have stalled climate change is by creating fear that people are going to lose their jobs. So I think it's really important for us in our early initiatives that I would push are ways that we can actually improve uh, the climate while creating jobs. And there's some great areas to do that in public transportation, right? It will create uh, uh, construction jobs. It'll improve the quality of your life for our people, reduces household emissions by 10% of the commute by train. Affordable housing, build it closer to where the jobs are so people don't have to commute. Again, creates more opportunity for people, but it also reduces emissions. Finally, I'd say in our district, we're about to have the largest wind farm in the eastern U.S. put in place off of our coast. Every single one of the wind turbines will be imported from Europe. We don't build them here. Why not? We should invest in these growth in, uh, industries around green energy and clean energy. Let's build those turbines here in District 4. Um, create more manufacturing jobs, build up the middle class and middle income opportunities for people to actually be able to cross the, the economic divide and uh, with their families. So I think there are opportunities like that, and that's what we should focus on um, and bring people towards us to actually take action, not just go down and yell at each other down in Congress and say, you know, you don't get it. Uh, you know, you're not smart. You don't get it. Well, let's bring them towards us, create these jobs and get things done. Okay. Thank you. So just to continue on this line of questioning, sure. your experience as a data analyst must give you an extremely interesting outlook on the extent to which racism is embedded within the technology and the structure of our police department. Joy Bolmwini, a co-graduate of your alma mater, discusses fighting algorithmic bias in a TED Talk, which is a topic similar to that of an article from a couple of weeks ago by the New York Times about how a man was falsely accused for a crime that he did not commit by an algorithm. I was wondering what you think of the role of government should be in regulation of these algorith algorithms, particularly those used by internal systems, such as the national security or police departments? Wow, another great question. Um, so before getting into the algorithm side, I think we have very clear, you know, targets of things that we have to address, right? Um, we, the data you mentioned, I'm a data person, right? coming from MIT, um, the data is clear, right? You can go see the, we can all go see the FBI's data. And if you're stopped by police and you're not threatening them, you have a 200% greater likelihood of being shot if your skin is black or brown, right? We have to address our policing. We have to address the training. We have to address the weapons. Um, we have to engage and make sure the police are engaged to improve um, the processes and especially the transparency. And we have to demand more of them. And I do believe that the majority of our police are prepared to step up uh, and drive real change. And I hope that's the case. I'm really excited by what I see in Taunton with the mayor bringing together the police and the community leaders to work together to find the right approaches. So first, I think we've got to address those things, um, which are just right in front of our faces. And I do support the Justice and Policing Act that was um, uh, introduced by Senators Booker and hopefully our next vice president, Senator Harris. And um, I think we need to drive that. Now, in terms of the algorithms, now that's where we need more people down in Washington who understand technology. That's very subtle and it's deeply, as you noted, deeply embedded. So we clearly have to 
have um, not just regulations, but we need to have watchdogs that are really evaluating the sort of use of data and understanding and, and um, tracking the, and identifying the biases. So just like we have inspectors general, which unfortunately our current president doesn't seem to like because keeps on uncovering things, we need inspectors general. Well, we need inspector general uh, focus on these sort of areas as well. And we better make sure that the people are educated appropriately to be able to find it because they are subtle, they're deeply embedded, and it takes some digging to actually really see. Yeah, that's great. I uh, do appreciate that. And, um, you know, um, as I was researching into your policy initiatives, there was an interview that I came across, and I believe it was for the Fall River Media. And you did say that cybersecurity is the battlefield of the 21st century. And as we see tensions with countries such as China escalating daily and the problem of cybersecurity becoming all the more relevant, and as we see the power of technology yields on Americans, not as a sole crutch or even necessity, but even on our minds, made especially clear by the tactics used by Cambridge Analytica in the 2016 election to disseminate false information in aspiration of improving Trump's chances and again in the Brexit re uh, referendum, I was wondering what would you do if elected in Congress to better protect our nation against foreign threats, particularly those of technological nature and particularly those that preclude any ability to trace them? Um, yeah, another great question, another hard topic um, and a real challenge in our in our world in the 21st century. So um, uh, so I do believe the Internet, right, is I think I may have said the Internet or I should have said the Internet is the economic and military battlefield of the 21st century. And, um, you know, and sometimes they're very connected, uh, unfortunately. The first time that one of my companies was attacked by a nation state was the year 2000. So I'm very familiar with the tactics and the fact that it is happening, our intellectual properties being stolen. Um, that is actually one area I agree with the administration we have to address. Um, but also we can see meddling in our elections, which clearly happened much, uh, uh, even though some people might suggest it didn't, uh, clearly did. And um, how can we protect ourselves? Well, this again is where I see an opportunity for government to create collaboration. And you might, then I'm sure you've seen on my website, I'm very focused on how government can bring different groups in our society together who don't normally work together to get things done for the betterment of the community. So one of the things that I've done is I was on the board of the Advanced Cybersecurity Center here in Massachusetts. And what we focused on doing was bringing uh, government and industry together to prepare for and respond to um, cyber attacks. We hold... Um, uh, uh, tabletop exercises, we hold informational exercises, um, we have classes. So we bring the groups together to talk about how can we actually work together to strengthen our defenses against people who are coming in uh, anonymously and coming in from nation states. The challenge for us, right, is the whole internet, the, some of its greatest strength creates great weakness. Its greatest strength is you can go anywhere, um, see anything, if it's not blocked by the country, right? And quickly, easily conduct business and communicate through it. Well, that creates that openness and distributed nature of it also creates weaknesses and threats. And that's why we have to actually band together. I mean, it's not like when someone breaks into your house, you call up the police, they'll come by and they'll try to track someone down. It's, you know, cyber attacks are happening every millisecond 
in the United States, our law enforcement cannot track them all down. So really information sharing across organizations and collaboration and defense are the keys. And I would push for incentives and creation of organizations like the Advanced Cybersecurity Center to do just that. Yeah, you know, personally, I think it's really interesting how that migration into cybersecurity and really investing in that as a tactical um, defense hasn't really seen as quick of an adjustment as, you know, it's probably due. But to follow up on the political conflict, I do think that um, the way that we often see political conflicts in America play out, especially today, is, you know, um, significantly through ignorance um, and moreover uh, of resounding silencing of op uh, oppositional views. And this has been a central part of Trump's campaign, Kanye's campaign, the Daily Conversation. And, you know, um, just moreover, could you please explain what you think um, as the role of a politician would be in navigating the vast polarization of the current day and how would you propose to facilitate the perceived challenge to free speech and ergo liberal democracy as a whole? So I'm just writing this down because you've got about three questions in one there. Um, yeah, I'm going to get to you'll you'll stop me if I don't hit any of them or all of them rather. Um, so look, I think um, you might not be surprised that I believe that our uh, our society is going through a major transformation. It has been for a couple of decades. And your generation, it actually sort of, you know, what you've lived with. My generation has actually seen a lot of that transformation. And unfortunately, I think we've had an astounding lack of leadership in adapting to the changes of the fact that we are not in the industrial revolution. We're in the technology revolution era. Um, I think businesses have not adapted and shown leadership, which is why they're creating jobs that only people who can afford an expensive four-year college degree can get. I think our educational institutions have failed to lead. Um, the, uh, the pandemic has shown very clearly how it has not really taken advantage of 21st century technologies. And then finally, clearly Congress, I think. Our government has failed to lead. And part of that is because there just aren't enough people down there who understand it. Um, I think that we do need to get more people down there who understand the implications, the economic implications, the communications implications. So, you know, the, the internet is a great way for us to get information so we can see Arab Spring happening and they can um, share information uh, around protests, but it also gives a huge bullhorn to the people who scream the loudest. And if it's not regulated, it gives a platform for many people to spread misinformation and hate. And a challenge for us as individuals, not to get too philosophical about it, is we have to adapt as well. We have this deluge of information coming at, at us that we can't process. So what do we do? We, we revert to going to echo chambers. We fall prey to confirmation bias. I tell people, I, I go and I read CNN and I read Fox News and I read Wall Street Journal and I read the New York Times and the Boston Globe and the Washington Post. I want to see how everyone is talking about things, and then I'll make up my mind about what I think is is real. Now, I have my own particular opinions about all those different outlets, but we're not going to get into that right now. But I think it's important for us as individuals to broaden our discussions and not just talk to people who think the same same way we do. Um, but this this is a huge challenge, and I'm sorry, I don't have the solution yet. But I think we have to work together to um, 
create more regulations around the ability to spread misinformation and lies. Now, I do think that one way to make a major progress around that is elect Joe Biden president when, when we uh, vote in November. And I think that will create a great uh, change, but it doesn't change the underlying challenge of all of these technologies. But if I could just add one more thing. By all means. So I was just, I was just reading an article about QAnon, which I'm sure you're, you're aware of. And, um, fundamentally, I think when we look at so many of our problems, um, and the divide in America, which you talked about, right? Um, so much of it comes down to when people are desperate and when they don't see a future for themselves, they'll reach for anything that sounds like it could be helpful. Even if it's a conspiracy theory, even if it's a demagogue who lies like every time he opens his mouth, um, people, some people will reach for that if they're desperate. The underlying thing that we have to fix is the fact that we have a huge economic divide between the high earners and the low earners in our country. And we have the lowest economic mobility of any industrialized nation. People cannot see how they can get to where they can improve the life for their families. And when that's the case, they'll grab onto conspiracy theories. They will, they will follow people who say, no, it's, it's not your fault. It's their fault. Um, it's immigrants' fault or it's people who, who are different color or different class or whatever. And we have to fundamentally fix the problem. And the problem is lack of opportunity for everyone equally, which is what we aspire to, but are just very far from. Um, the only other thing I'd say, because you did, I think, ask about how would I go down to Congress to try to deal with this? I did. Deal with the vision? The execution of vision. So look, I think if we keep on sending the same type of people down to Washington and expect a different result, then we're kidding ourselves, right? That's the definition of insanity, right? Um, one of the reasons I got into this race was not because I thought the, the other candidates were bad people. I think they're all really good people, and I think they have good uh, desires of what to do for our country. But what I heard from all of the candidates, which is why I jumped into the race a little bit late, was how hard they were going to fight in the people they didn't like in Washington. Well, I think we have enough fighters in Washington. I don't believe sending one more fighter down to Washington is going to change it. We need leadership that's going to go down there and bring people together. Like the only politician I've ever worked for, Ted Kennedy, who I was an intern for, who showed me that you could fiercely drive for your values and policies, but still find a way to work with people you disagreed with to get things done for the people. So one of the things that I will do when I get down there is relentlessly work to bring people towards us in the Democratic Party and our values, but more importantly, bring them towards taking action for the people. If a Republican will work with me to reduce the obstacles that lower income and people of color face in trying to get a good education or get access to good health care, I will help them win. I'll get them a win of not yelling at them on CNN. I will get them a win of actually creating um a law that works for the people, that they can tout that they've done something good. Because all I care about is doing good for the people. And if if people will work with me on it, I'm going to help them succeed because we've just got to change the culture down there. I don't know. I, I don't know if I can ask you guys questions, but, you know, I would uh, at some point love to hear your view 
of just how effective you think our Congress is. Because I think it's horribly ineffective because we just don't have leadership that are trying to work together. Um, unfortunately, as a nonpartisan, we can't you give can't out. Respond. But right. um, I can say that um, I think unanimously we can um, definitely appreciate, um, especially non-career politicians that have such uh, big objectives and prioritization for addressing the polarization, especially when it comes to, you know, the prior election and this upcoming election. And I think that fresh motivation and fresh set of eyes and that ambition and drive is something that a lot of um, the younger demographics, especially I would say college students, would would be the primary um, audience of this live stream right now, would have to, you know, have to say that that's one of the biggest driving force. It's the charisma and motivation of a politician to go into Congress and say, I'm not going to be bought out. And I really am here to make, you know, lasting, meaningful and significant change. It's about time, isn't it? It's it's a little due, Sorry, but <laughs> better yeah, late absolutely. than never. <laughs> So it sounds like you do have a lot of passion and you do have a very unique perspective, which is awesome. I just wanted to say as a first, as a fellow first generation Greek American, I know that we both have some experience with the immigration process and how it affects both parents and children who are acclimating to the American lifestyle. So immigrant families faced a host of challenges, one of them being access to education. Immigrants and low income families often have limited access to resources such as internships and affordable loan plans. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your loan forgiveness plans, what you hope this will do for students. And I'm sure that a lot of first generation and low income students and immigrant families would like to hear about your experience as a first generation Greek American and how that's shaped your approach to immigrant reform. Sure. So I'll start there and then I'll get to the loan forgiveness. Um, so my father emigrated here um, with $100 in his pocket and a scholarship to a college in the Midwest that went out of business after his first semester. Oh. And so there he was in the Midwest and uh, with a scholarship to a college that didn't exist anymore. And somehow he found his way to Kansas University. He worked nights in a cardboard manufacturing plant um, and then did well enough, paid for it, that he got a scholarship to go to MIT for grad school. And eventually he became a professor and he he and my mother, who also was a first-generation American, her father immigrated from the Azores uh, here, um, they built this great life for my family. I got to go to MIT, got to go to great schools in high school, and I didn't have to jump over nearly as many hurdles as he did. Some, you know, Unfortunately, my father passed away when I was 23. I didn't get a, a, a long enough time to really get all the stories, but I understood how hard it was for him and how much tenacity it took. Now, two things, uh, big things I take from that. One is, you know, people who want to come to the United States, who risk everything, leave everything that they know behind, add a lot of value to our country. So many of our companies have been started by people who are immigrants or first-generation Americans. They add so much value to our society and demonization of, of immigrants just is a disgrace. Um, now that said, we've got really complex issues around our immigration policy. Um, I, I also believe fundamentally, again, the problem is too many Americans think immigrants are going to take their, their jobs. And I don't believe that the data shows that, but they're worried. So if we can solve that, I think we can break the logjam around this. But the second thing um, that, that, you know, my, my father's 
experience taught me. And my experience as a first generation American whose, whose family lived the American dream that half of our people don't even believe in it, um, is that everyone should have this opportunity that I had. Regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of their zip code, regardless of where their parents came from or what language was their first language. And when you look at the, at the challenges that face immigrants and people from lower income communities, you see layer upon layer of obstacle. Horrible quality internet access, whether they can afford it or not. Transportation that doesn't work. I mean, down in Fall River, um, I talked with the principal of the Resiliency Preps, uh, which is the high school there, and, uh, or middle school and high school uh, for some of the students. Their kids can't stay late to study because the bus lines run at reduced frequency at 2.30. So they can't even access the same sort of things that my kids can access um, and I could access. So the second thing I took is that from it was that we have to create equal opportunity, justice, and liberty for all. That is what we aspire to do. And unless we're relentlessly trying to eliminate these obstacles, um, we're not doing our job. And one of those obstacles is who can afford a quarter million dollars for a four-year college degree? Not many people, right? And a lot of people can't afford even being out of the workforce for four years, right? Um, as you, you may have seen with uh, um, your family, um, and people you know in the community, a lot of people have to work while they're going to school to support their families. Absolutely. So this is why I am so focused on how do we invest in our community colleges and vocational schools that already have set up very much, much better than four-year colleges for remote learning and distance learning and evening learning um, and enable people to go there and get access to good jobs after one to two years. Now, these sort of jobs I talked about, um, cybersecurity, user design experience, environmental technicians, those sort of things we, we're beginning to call new collar jobs in our industry. And if we gave people a, a no or low interest loan to go to the community college for one to two years, got them experiential learning and apprenticeships by giving incentives to companies to engage with the schools like I've done with Mass Bay and eight great companies in Massachusetts, and they go out into the workforce and say we require them to do 160 hours of um, community service. Maybe go work with K through 12 school. After two years, they would have paid enough in taxes to pay for their loan. So let's forget it. Yeah. So let's forgive it. And we're all better off. The students get access to opportunity. Our schools get investment and get to expand. Our companies get more people to hire instead of having to ship the jobs overseas. Everybody wins. Yeah, I do, th I do think you have these um, unique experiences, especially as a first generation um, American. And, you know, my father had a similar story coming over here with like $60 in his pocket from Turkey. But um, I do want to be respectful of your time. And I'm, I'm sorry, again, that we started about 10 minutes late, but we do have um, about four more questions left before we wrap okay, it I'll up. Try to be, I'll try to be shorter. No, that's, <laughs> no all, that's all good. I just wanted to know if um, it would be okay with you if we elapsed over the 7.30 time because sure. there are seven minutes left. Yeah? All right, great. Yeah, sorry, no Callie. You can go ahead. <laughs> okay. No, thank you so much for your detailed answers. They're very insightful. Um, so on the topic of your new-collar jobs, 
We would like to hear more a bit more a bit more about how you propose to confront the difficulties of job outsourcing in the way of automation. If you would like to talk a bit about that. Um, yeah, I think so. To me, this is this is part of what we have to do, right? I think I mentioned that MIT Future Work Study, right, where we're eliminating 20, 25 percent of the middle class, middle income jobs. Now, some of that is globalization, and some of that is automation, right? That's going to continue to happen. And in fact, the pandemic is going to accelerate it, right? Every company I talk to, they're all talking about, hey, we don't need as much commercial real estate. We don't need as much space. We're going to go to half space. Okay. Well, if they go to half space, it's not just the people who own the buildings that are going to get half of the, half of the money. We need less janitorial services, less maintenance service, less physical security services. We're going to be eliminating more jobs. We have to recognize that in this world of the 21st century, we have to, as individuals, constantly up our game. Now, in the tech world, we sort of realize this because pretty quickly we're going to get stale and not add value to our companies. But even in tech-driven jobs elsewhere, like cybersecurity jobs in insurance companies or distribution companies, um, we have to create lifelong learning opportunities. Um, and we just have to continually up-level our capabilities. I think the government can drive that. They can incent companies to actually want to invest in their people instead of just investing in their equipment. I mean, right now, companies get a tax credit for capital capital investments. They don't get the same level of tax credit for investing in their people. Well, I want to change that. Let's increase the tax credit for investing in lifelong learning for their staff so they can continually get the, the um, skills necessary to succeed in the 21st century. In that way, if jobs happen to get automated away, there's an opportunity for them either in the company or in other companies because they have the skills to succeed. And this is also around manufacturing, right? That there are a lot of advanced manufacturing um, jobs and technology areas um, that we need to also invest in training in the vocational schools and the um, uh, community colleges. So I think we've got to recognize that automation is going to happen. And the best thing that we can do is create this lifelong learning, I guess, safety net. I don't, I wouldn't even call it a safety net, but capability that people always have access to, uh, to enable them to up level their skills and get good jobs. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so on a similar topic of justice for all, um, I was looking on your website and I saw that you stated that women, not the government, should make decisions that affect their own bodies. So I was wondering if you could explain a bit about how your administration would continue to pursue justice for victims of sexual assault and further secure the rights of women to their own bodies. So I think this is an area that you're going to see um, very little difference between the candidates in, in uh, the fourth district. I think we are all in concert around the need to try to uh, in, uh, basically embed in law uh, Roe versus Wade and not just not just count on the courts. Uh, to drive uh, support for a women's right to make the decision about their own body, which I firmly 100% uh, strongly believe in. Um, the other things we need to do are expand Title X funding, um, get rid of the global gag rule, right? We need to and get rid of the, the Hyde Amendment so that we actually enable all women, not just wealthier women, 
to be able to get access to the services they need um, that are that are their right um, that they can't get today. Just so much, there's been so much erosion through these different attempts, the Hyde Amendment, the global gag rule, that really primarily affect women in lower income communities. And that's just that's just flat out wrong. So I would work with um, uh, all of the other uh, representatives to try to pass those er those legislation in those areas. And I think you're going to hear pretty much exactly the same thing from uh, uh, the other candidates in this race. I'd be surprised if you heard anything different. Okay, so um, you did have, um, what was it, the second to last question before we wrap it up. Um, this will be the second to last, but Callie asked a question um, that prompted you to respond about um, job automation. So, you know, according to the 2018 census, um, about 70,000 and a half or a little bit over uh, a quarter of the households in the fourth district make just a little bit less than $50,000 a year in adjusted inflated dollars. So if you are a proponent of increasing the minimum wage, or if you are not, how do we ensure that we uplift families through the minimum wage while simultaneously ensuring that we don't drive job, um, don't drive out job automation? As we've seen in cities like San Francisco, and price people out of job markets in the communities that they live in. Yeah, yeah. So this this again is a, is a complex issue, and it takes multiple um, actions to actually affect it. I do believe that we should raise the minimum wage, but I think it's perhaps just as important that we create stronger services um, in all the other parts of life for people who are uh, not earning as much as others in our district. S stronger, better public transportation so they can get access to better jobs if, if they can qualify for them, but also to improve their lives. Um, affordable housing. I think we should be investing in giving incentives in the creation of more affordable housing. Um, and Frankly, if we improve transportation, that also enables access to jobs that are further away. Um, so they can live in areas where it's more affordable. Um, investment in healthcare availability, which will improve the quality of life, um, but also will reduce absence, you know, people having to take absences from work, um, which affect productivity. These are sort of win-win um, areas that I think we need to address. But I also think, and I may be a little different than the other candidates, I think that only part of the job for the congressperson is to go down to Washington and create laws. I think the other part of the job is to work in the district to help the, dis the people of the district, the towns of the district, the businesses and the governments in the district work together better for the betterment of the community. So a company I know um, Sexzetta, a security company, recently moved into Fall River. Well, let's get more companies to move into Fall River. And who better to help that than a congressperson who can talk the language with those companies and twist the arms of those companies and won't be snowed by any arguments about why they couldn't do it uh, that don't really make sense. Um, I think we can use the bully pulpit of the congressperson's job to bring our businesses to work more effectively for our communities. And frankly, we have to do that. You know, uh, I know many in your generation believe that capitalism is broken. And one thing I will say is clearly 20th century capitalism isn't working in the 21st century. So we have to challenge our businesses to engage with the community more to provide um, better services for the community and more opportunity for the people. 
And I think that's something that I can do. So just to follow up on that before we actually get into the last question, because you did talk about 21st century capitalism and that did pique my interest. So um, in your own vision of the um, century ahead and with the following election cycles, how do you see the 21st uh, century capitalism kind of forming itself, especially with the monopolization of tech companies? And I guess what could be seen as this hypersensitized um, focus on the manipulation and exploitation of companies, especially those who end up moving offshore and, you know, use, um, let's say, child labor and et cetera? Once again, huge question. Um, so I'll, tr- I'll, I'll try to make sure I get to it all. Um, so first of all, I'm, I'm a big proponent of uh, stakeholder capitalism, which is something that Brian Moynihan, the CEO of, um, uh, of Bank of America and a resident of our district, by the way, um, has been driving uh, through, um, uh, you know, through his bully pulpit as CEO of, of Bank of America. And the idea, of course, is that companies need to not just optimize for the uh, return to shareholders. They have to optimize also for the return to their staff the return to their customers, the return to their communities. Now, this is something that I have lived. My second company, which was the one that I grew to be the largest, about 250 people worldwide. Um, We started working with the Curley School in Jamaica Plain and first started giving money so that they could do STEM programs, then equipment, then sponsored service learning trips, then brought kids to our our headquarters so they could learn about the opportunities in tech and in STEM. And um, we felt that that was a huge part of what we needed to deliver to the community. And frankly, that was the start of STEM match. Um, after I left the company and we sold it, that's when I went off and I started. And now we're working with six schools and 15 companies. Um, I think there is a thirst in many, with many companies to engage with the community that way. And we have to drive challenge and incent them to do that. So I, I think the, the idea of the role of a business in the community has got to be viewed much more broadly. And it's got to be led by leaders who think that way. So that's what I think is the opportunity with 21st century capitalism is to change that. Um, and, um, you know, in terms of I mean, you also brought in the, you know, consolidation of big tech and offshoring and child labor. I mean, obviously our government has got to take action around, um, the exploitation of children around the world. And I mean, I'm not a big fan of tariffs, but if there's a place for tariffs to play, it's in that area to disincent, um, companies around the world from exploiting children, uh, as labor. And, um, and in terms of big tech, we've already talked about that a bit. Um, you know, I think, um, I think they'll find me in Washington, um, a challenge and an ally, someone who wants them to succeed, but will hold them accountable, um, to, uh, deliver for the good uh, of everybody, not just for, uh, you know, the pocketbooks of, of a few. So as this would lead me into my next and final question, I do have yet another follow-up to this because I do find this <laughs> extremely intriguing. I am so sorry. Okay, but question number one and a half. One okay, and a half. I can, I can try to tie in the final question into this as well. Um, it's okay. 
So the tw- uh, continuing on your um, cumulative experiences, both personally and professionally, as a businessman and someone extremely familiar with the tech industry, would you go into the house and prioritize bills that would promote what would be 21st century capitalistic ideals first? Or would you try to make a more balanced approach when it comes to the matters that have to do with, you know, economic, uh, fiscal planning and social and humanitarian objectives? So, so look, the, the, the first thing and the thing that really has driven me to be in this race, other than the fact that I think you need to send someone who's a builder and, you know, creates win-win solutions instead of fights down to Washington is to, to fix our economic divide, to fix economic and opportunity inequality. So I will do whatever I can from the very start in pragmatic, practical ways to eliminate the obstacles that face our people. 70% of our people who are in middle or lower income uh, levels to get ahead. And I'm going to, you know, whether it's if, if I can find people, enough people who are willing to work with me on creating um, universal internet access, quality access to eliminate that obstacle, then I'll start there. If they'll work with me on bringing up the level of STEM education and experiential learning so that it's equal across all of our uh, towns, not just the affluent towns, having good quality STEM experiential learning, I'll start there. I'm really going to try to be pragmatic about this because this is a two-year job, not a lifetime job. I know a lot of people think about it like a lifetime job, but I view this as a two, two-year two job and the people will give me a job review at the end of two years about whether I've driven any progress. And so I'm going to be very pragmatic about that. So you would tackle it more so on a micro scale first. Um, although I think the opposition could argue that, you know, handling um, more of the economic volatility and the wealth stratification and, um, you know, trying to increase job accessibility and, you know, find a way to um, bring lower income and, you know, lower socioeconomic demographics um, and kind of close that stratification. The problems are a little bit more systematic and deeply pushed by the pursuit of bigger companies that do monopolize the markets. So I guess my question is more so, would you try to tackle grassroots, although there is that overhead of the macro problem that does make it more systematic? So, uh, So I think the most important thing and you know, I could go on forever about how we can do this around climate change as well. And I gave you some examples, right? The most important thing that we have to do is build and grow our way out of this economic mess, right? We have to create more jobs because we can print money and we need to print money so that people don't starve and their uh, families aren't um, kicked out of their uh, houses or their apartments. Um, we have to do that but we're not going to get back to prosperity by printing money. We have to grow. So the key is creating more jobs that are accessible to more people. Now, you may have seen on my website, the thing I would like to drive first is what we've been talking about, right? The investment in the community college education, the incentives to companies to engage with them and creating an on-ramp for people who can't afford four-year college degrees to good jobs. That's where I'd like to start. We'll see if I get traction. In. But we have to create jobs and not just create jobs that people can't get. We've had enough of that. 
jobs that 100% of our people can get access to. Good jobs where they can raise a family and they can create a good life for their family. I mean, that's what our people ask and that's what our government should be able to drive. Yeah, I do appreciate that answer. And so for the final question, as okay, <laughs> after really those three follow-ups, I'm so sorry. I did find those answers like, extremely interesting. And I do think that they were worth diving into a little bit more because I think that was something that was very unique to this interview, especially um, the entire um, background that you do have that serves to bring these interesting policy initiatives and your perspective on everything. In addition to having more of these forefront methodologies that do try to progress not just society socially, and, um, you know, for the health of society, but also just economically, you know, aiding that as that will be also a um, pretty festered problem by the time we actually transition to having the new elected um, House members. But, um, you know, with the um, cumulative personal and professional experiences, just to wrap it up, um, to give our viewers just a final statement, um, how do you think that you would be um, ranked amongst your peers in terms of like what makes you more qualified as a potential con uh, congressperson to hold a seat? Sure. Relative to the other candidates? Relative perhaps? to the other candidates in the MA4 race, correct. Yeah. So like I said, they're all good people um, and they've had good experiences, um, but none of them have created good, you know, hundreds of good paying jobs that people can lift their families up with. I've done them. None of them have worked to create um, new pathways for people to get to those good jobs as I now people have done good things certainly and I've even complimented um, people which has sort of surprised people in the debates you know Alan Casey's done a great job with uh, city year I mean what a great uh, program my daughter's an alum um, but um, that creates a, a lot of good um, expansion of the teachers um, but it doesn't create a new pathway and I think right now what we need, is this new pathway for people to get access to opportunity. And really, um, when you look at um, the other candidates, I'm the only one who has that experience. I'm also the only one who's really an entrepreneur who brings people together who don't work together nor normally to get things done. And I think we have to do that down in Washington. I mean, we, we can't send the same sort of approach down there and expect that something different is going to happen. Now, we're all going to vote, you know, around reproductive justice and social justice and climate change. We're pretty much going to vote the same way. The question is, how are we going to be able to help lead us through this time period when, you know, hopefully soon we'll have the vaccine where we have to dig our way out of this mess? And, um, you know, I really I believe that my experience is very unique in this um uh, in this race. And frankly, it's unique in Congress. As I mentioned, there are only six people down there who have that kind of experience. And I think that's what we need for the next two years. We got to build our way out of this thing and we can't afford these, you know, back and forth, um, you know, inability of Congress and Senate and, uh, and the house to actually get things done. Time is wasted. But I, if I could, if I could just yeah, finish on a positive note, I do want to finish on a positive <laughs> note. So look, as an entrepreneur, I am optimistic. I am always optimistic that we can find a way. And uh, I don't know if you saw, but one of the things I'm doing when I uh, to try to see people and, and hear about what's important to them is I'm riding my bike through every town in the district. So I actually ride my bike to work on good days when I'm not taking uh, the train uh, to my company. 
And so I enjoyed biking. So I go bike through the towns. And I got to tell you, biking through the towns is a great way to be inspired about our country and our people. So I want to share, if I could, share one story with you. By all means. Because this is, I think, this shows what we need to do in our society and down in Congress. So I went down to Taunton in one of my visits to Taunton, and I biked to the Pearl Restaurant, and I met with the owner, Odette Costa. And she's an immigrant, and she is an entrepreneur. She had started, you know, started this restaurant a few years before. And it was in the midst of the pandemic. It was closed. And she said, come on in the back room. Let me show you something. So I went in the back room and there were six sewing machines and piles of fabric. And she said, there were six women who didn't have a place to make masks for people who are homeless or who couldn't afford masks. So I said, go ahead, use it here. So look what they've done. And, and I, I said, this is awesome. And she said, actually, one of the women who's outside on the side, outside in the alley is one of those folks. Let me introduce you. And now I had noticed when I came into the restaurant that there were two people with a folding table handing out food. And I thought, oh, that must be her takeout area. So I said, oh, so she's doing your takeout. And she said, oh, no, no, no. Actually, those two women own a catering company that's about to go out of business because of the pandemic. And I said, come here and sell your food right next to my restaurant. Now, how about that? She brought a competitor to sell food right next to a restaurant and you know push people to it this this is the strength of our country is our people who care about the community and who sacrifice for the community and do good for the community and as i'm writing through all the towns i see stories like this this was a particularly inspirational one if we can bring some of this down to washington my god what we could do right working together instead of just looking out for ourselves. And I hope to bring that down. That's that's how I try to work. Um, I will try to bring that down to Washington and see if we can get Congress to deserve the job to support and, and represent the people um, who really are good. So I think we have an opportunity to do that in the pandemic. It's giving us a chance to do some big things and I'm looking forward to an opportunity to do that. So thanks for the opportunity to talk with you guys. A man of opportunity. Thank thank you for coming on. Um, I do have to say that's a very inspiring story. And again, thank you so much for coming on as our final, um, you know, candidate for the interview series prior to the town hall that will be on August 17th, exactly on the Switch channel at 5 p.m. I also have to say, um, just for the audience, early voting starts August 22nd, but voting officially starts on September 1st. So please make sure that if you are able to vote that you do go out and vote because every vote does count and MA4 could definitely use a new candidate um, to go into Congress and, you know, make some changes happen. And in addition to that, um, I do have to thank um, Kristen, the campaign manager for Mr. Zanettos. She's been great. And the audience for coming in. Um, Thank you guys for watching live. Um, Callie, do you have anything else that you'd like to say? Um, that pretty much sums it up. Thank you so much for your time. We've enjoyed having you here today and good luck in the campaign. Thank you. And if I could just say, if people are interested in helping, we would love to have more people uh, join us to try to get this stuff done down in Washington. They could go to chrisz4ma.com. But if they can spell Zanettos, they can also go to zanettosforcongress.com. But uh, we try to make it easy too. We'll try to make sure that social media also circulates the um, links that are affiliated with Mr. Zanetto's campaign if anyone is interested in volunteering. 
it is never too late to get involved. And again, thank you so much for um, coming out today and talking with us. Hi, Callie. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been fun. Thank you for listening in on our part six of our Massachusetts 4th Congressional District Election Series. Please make sure to subscribe to The Politica to hear our next interview, which is the Town Hall on August 17th. For more content like this, check out our publication and website as well. See you next time.